Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. People usually, by and large, unless they're criminals, people usually are rocking up to work to try and do the right thing. They're, you know, banks don't actually set out as part of their mission statement to rip off customers, right? We all know that. And I know people who work in banks and hand on heart, they think they are serving the best interest of the customer and that's what they want to do. They want their work to be meaningful and to be helping people. But if you say that in the ether of things, then give them conflicting priorities and no framework to support them to behave in a way that supports actually executing those values, then it's not a surprise that you fail. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor at the GRC Institute. And I think this is the first podcast for the year that we're having with our CEO, Naomi Burley. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. Happy New Year. Yes, yes. This uh, this is not the first podcast we publish, but it will be the first one that we wish you Happy New Year. Yeah, <laughs> so that's Happy right. New Year, everyone. Uh, so we are today, it's really a, an event debrief more than anything else, I would say. Um, yep. Just before the end of last year, we had an event with Deloitte um, looking at the standard 37301, um, but specifically looking at the explicit mention of culture within the standard. Um, and so we had a really interesting set of speakers. We had Murray Lawson, we had Professor Dean Sanders, and of course we had our chair, Heather Lowenthal, um, also from Deloitte, um, all sort of putting their pieces in there. Um, so just to really jump straight into things, um, Murray Lawson sort of gave the opening presentation um, of the event, and he talked about this as like sort of the first standard um, where there's this explicit mention of culture. And I was kind of wondering, why is that so significant? Why would that be significant to our members? Um, look, it, it is the, the first sort of mention in a standard, especially it's an interesting inclusion for a certification standard because we all know how slippery and difficult culture can be to measure. So if you're talking about a standard you want to be certified against, and then you're talking about evidence of having culture. Um, but I think... It's, it's important for two reasons. One, it's something that we had in 3806 and probably did get de-emphasised in 19600 because it is a tough topic. But um, at the same time, the pressure came very consistently from all of the international members on the committee. All of them said having a culture of compliance is absolutely essential. And so that's a really interesting learning for, I guess, Australian compliance professionals that um, internationally this is something that your fellow professionals over there have been uh, trying to build within their organisations. It's something that they keep working on having conversations about. Um, the second part that makes it significant is that it subtly recognises that complying or not complying um, is something that can ebb and flow in an organisation, uh, even though the laws, you know, we talk about constant regulatory change, but we all know that there are regulations and laws that are there and that there are organisations who operate with less attention to those obligations um, than others. So. It's, it's acknowledging that this is something that moves, that is affected by leadership, that is affected by other elements within the organisation, whether it's your remuneration model or what it might be. So it's overtly bringing to the fore that organisations make active decisions all the time whether they're actually going to comply or not. 
um, irregardless of what the law says. And um, so I thought I think that that's an interesting um, inclusion for that reason. And compliance professionals just kind of talk about culture of compliance because we're in the know. But I think having it in the standard as one that you then foreshadow with the board as their responsibility as well. So that's what's also highlighted in the standard. They have to lead it. Um, it's there because the people in the room developing the standard recognise that it's not something that compliance does, it's something that the organisation does. It's something that your line one does. Um, so so for, for me, that's why I found it find it really, really significant. But it's it's an interesting challenge that's posed by it because it is a moving feast. Yeah. So another interesting thing also from Lawson's presentation was he talked a bit about that definition around stakeholders within the standard. Um, and I got the impression that it was quite it was quite more expanded than it had been previously. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is expanded from 1900. Um, and the deliberate listing of those within a certification standard is important. Uh, because that means it is a requirement to have considered those stakeholders. If you want to be certified, you need to have considered uh, what those stakeholders' requirements are and how you're going to comply with them. Um, the conversation quite often happens in organisations whether you're going to comply with them, as Murray did actually expand on, but it, it's very interesting that that list is quite long in a certification standard. So if you are going to be certified, you're gonna to have to demonstrate in some way to the certifier that you've considered them and how they've been incorporated or if there were any requirements, there might not have been any requirements for some stakeholders or some stakeholders might not be applicable, but you're gonna to have to have documented that you thought about it. Whereas, you know, having it very high level, like it's been in the previous iterations of the standard, left it a little bit open to organisations to not consider that. I think it's also that there were learnings for the people in the room who, again, were compliance professionals or people who work with organisations to help certify them in lots of other ways. Um, that recognises that um, unless you spell it out, organisations may not always uh, think of those stakeholders or the, the board might not think of them. But again, if it's spelled out for you, you you've really got to have, have taken the time to to think about what their needs are. And, and they've learnt from things like our Royal Commission, other things that have happened in other organisations, that one of the fundamental missings has been thinking about what those stakeholders need and actually incorporating it into your clients' frameworks. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, you know, I don't want to go off topic here, but I think this is one of the things that's been arising in the in the discussion group. We've got around 37301 and what kind of support resources culture was one of the things that came up and we sort of harked back to this event, but also the experience of members uh, when they're reporting up to someone or when it's shoved in and made to fit in a normal risk assessment you know, so you want to assess all your obligations, that that the temptation is to make business decisions to pare down how many things you've got to assess in there. So you, you pick your priorities. And organisations with the best of intentions of the world who have their organisation organisational values up there, out there in the world on their website, 
um, saying that they behave with integrity and they have customer care, they're the first ones to drop off um, when they do the assessment. So there's no compliance framework structure supporting everyone in the organisation, maintaining that as a focus and meeting those obligations. It's just very general, like, like the general ethical standard. We're all going to be good people and we're all going to make decisions and we'll try and have the customer first. You say that, but if you take it out of the compliance framework, there's no supporting structure to help you do it and to help that remain doesn't have to be a focus but remain in the system of processes you have to operate your business in a compliant and sustainable way so yeah, sure. so that's why I think it's really really important sorry I went off track <laughs> no no and, and I think it, it does the, there was another bit of the conversation where they talked a little bit about um, the, the perception of the culture within the organization having a very profound impact and it was discussed in that webinar and I also know that Professor Elizabeth Sheedy at previous events has also talked about the importance of the risk culture perception um, as a good indicator of the actual culture or some of the cultures within an organization. It is, it is. And it's through no, no fault of anyone. I mean, we always come back to this. People usually, by and large, unless they're criminals, people usually are rocking up to work to try and do the right thing. They're, you know, banks don't actually set out as part of their mission statement to rip off customers, right? We all know that. And I know people who work in banks and hand on heart, they think they are serving in the best interest of the customer and that's what they want to do. They want their work to be meaningful and to be helping people. But if you say that in the ether of things, then give them conflicting priorities and no framework to support them to behave in a way that supports actually executing those values, then it's not a surprise that you fail. It's like saying, I'm going to lose 10 kilos, but I'm not going to change anything about my diet or exercise or lifestyle to do that. I'm just going to think about it every day and magically it will happen. It won't unless you build a structure to support that to happen. Uh, so just moving us slightly off the standard Sorry. itself. And... <laughs> off my rant. <laughs> <laughs> not off your rant, off the standard. Um <laughs> And talk a bit about, so Lawson also mentioned um, APRA's 10 dimensions of culture, as, as we were discussing before, risk culture, really, um, and that sort of setup that they have there. And I was kind of interested to know, well, I guess first I should say that he mentioned the fact that this would sort of set the standard for the way that regulators, both um, here locally as well as internationally, will probably be looking at this as a way of how they look at culture and organizations. Mm. But I guess also... Is there a kind of nexus between the culture um, within the standard, how it's mentioned and what is expected from the standard versus um, what um, APRA is looking at? Yeah, look, there is a little bit and um, and it's funny because there was that discussion in the, in the session about there isn't a compliance culture and then an organisational culture and then a risk culture they're either all the same thing, you can't have conflicting ones. So they are all interrelated. There might be activities that you run to enhance the understanding of compliance in that organisational culture or improve that within that. But but I agree with with um, with Professor Sanders and, and I agree with those in, in the conversation. You can't have all these 10 different cultures. APRA's approach to that is obviously because, you know, they've put the label on it where they're looking at specific things around risk because that's their, that's their wheelhouse. Um, and and we, we had um, Sean Carmody 
speak at the conference on that in great detail. So it's an absolutely fascinating study they've done and the metrics they're connecting on that. So I think, I think the intersect is that they're trying to tackle measuring that in some way, but don't think for a minute that these are all separate cultures. You cannot have one kind of risk culture and then a compliance culture that's really, really positive. Oh, we've got this really lousy risk culture or we're going to make really risky decisions, but we're going to be compliant. You know, that's the same thing as saying, I'm going to eat all the cake, but I'm still going to lose 10 kilos. It's not going to happen. So I think they are interrelated. And I, and I think it's definitely a piece that we've got to keep our eye on because APRA has a long history of working quite strongly with, with international regulators and trying to do these research pieces and trying to lead the way in, in having these discussions. So it'll be really interesting to see who else picks this up, um, likes it as a model and the flow through for measuring cultures and, and what might then land on compliance's desk where someone from risk goes, oh, look, this is a really nifty model for measuring the risk culture. Can you adapt it for compliance? You know, so so I think that I think the thing is here is don't forget that they're all interrelated. Um, and that if you have if you have a poor rating on one, I dare say that that stretches across others, that it's going to keep changing and shifting, and that they are taking a particular um, they are taking a particular slant on this, but that doesn't mean that we can't learn from the way they've measured it and can't adapt some things, but it's not going to meet all the measures, especially in um, that culture of, I guess what, what Murray was talking about, the acceptance of what you are going to comply with, what you secretly say, we don't really need to worry about that one. Um, and what you actually do comply with is a little bit different to probably the risk matrix that APRA is working with, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't all work together. Um, that was a really long way of answering that question. I hope I did answer it. <laughs> I think you did. You did answer it, I think. Uh, and I guess really, is there anything, obviously we both attended the event and I'm sure there's some things that jumped out to you that I probably haven't sort of tugged on or paid too much attention to that I should have. Is there anything that jumped out to you that... Uh, I think it's definitely worth mentioning. I, I thought the whole conversation was really interesting. And, and um, as you're probably going to say at the end, we are going to share that recording a little bit more widely as well um, from that event. But, you know, that culture is not a static thing. And like your frameworks, it's not just that there's constant change uh, per se. It, it's just that it evolves. You have different generations come through in the workforce. You then have different employment patterns. How long people stay in your organisation means that the culture is going to change. If you have big um, chunks of your organisation moving in and out all the time, uh, so it's something that you need to keep a continual eye on, and and it's um, it's very connected to the question of who does what in the organisation. So it probably is a line to function to monitor that and be making the leadership in the organisation aware of trends in culture. So it is an important thing to keep an eye on. But it feeds into to the point that Murray made really early, which I thought was fascinating, is that we don't necessarily have overt conversations about um, an agreement on what you're going to comply with, but you definitely have um, underground conversations about that. And, and we have lots of members still talking about, well, how do I engage 
line one and how do I persuade them to comply, you know, as though that's the core of your job. And that's your cultural indicator. If you're persuading them to comply, you've obviously got disagreement about what you what you're complying with so you need to go back to that first conversation i mean murray called it a process and i think that's a really important thing to acknowledge organizations do actually do that when they set priorities and make business decisions which is a usual thing they do cut out you know oh well we can't comply with everything so these will be our priorities and we hope everything else falls into line that's not the same thing as saying we're not going to comply with it but it might end up being the same thing as saying we're not going to comply with those bits and pieces because we can't, we don't have the systems to do it. So we'll just hope for the best. So that's, that's I think, what you've got to watch in compliance with the accidental disagreements with complying with something um, because it's not, a, it's not in a priority or it's not in your risk table um, because it is an immense thing to say, right, we're going to comply with every single obligation. Um, it's, you know, I think we're going to have to take a smarter way of condensing things and putting them all in the same basket and seeing if we can get wins off things that are very similar to. But, but, um, but the, the, the big thing that came out of me was that process is not often acknowledged and then line two is left with the job, even though they're not leading compliance culture, of persuading the rest of the business to comply. Um, and that's not their job. So, it, you know, I think we need to clear up that role clarity. Uh, they should be monitoring it. They should be alerting the leadership to the fact that we might be steering off course in terms of culture, and then it should be up to the leadership to do something about that. Um, but I think that that's, I think we go back to that beginning of that process is like, well, then maybe fundamentally your organisation hasn't agreed to comply with those things and you need to look at that. And again, that's not compliance's job to make you agree with it, but it might be their job to point out that you're not doing it. Um, and it might it might take other things. It might take a shake-up of how you report things and how you structure your business as well, because there's definitely where you make you make key business decisions and that all makes sense and you have to be pragmatic, but you might be throwing out a whole lot of things um, and, and that's that moves things moves the needle in the direction you don't want it to go in so that was a big part of me is don't forget there's three steps in that process yeah. um uh, yeah no <laughs> uh, so for anyone who wants to continue this discussion and wants to get a bit deeper into it i, I believe you said that there's the compliance dis um discussion the framework group yes yes so we've got two we've got a working party working at the moment on support resources to go with 37301 and one of those bigger pieces we're looking at is the cultural piece to to you know sort of tease that out a bit um but also we've got a compliance frameworks discussion group and i don't know whether registrations closed for that at the end of last year but we can reopen those up um or if you're interested just email um myself or admin at the grcinstitute.org um, and we can get you on board with that. And that's a discussion group for sort of teasing out the elements of the framework, not necessarily just based on 37301, it'll be that and beyond. Um, and, and working through an agenda that's gonna run over the whole year to sort of talk about how people are getting out, how people are documenting it, where they're hitting challenges, all those kinds of things. And then we will have future events on 37301, as well as relaunching our uh, course around um, uh, the standard. So we had the 19600 course and we'll be relaunching a course on 37301 as well. Um, so all those things will come into 
come into effect probably in the next two quarters. Yeah, sounds good. And you can tell that it's after three o'clock because I got my words in the wrong order there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, um, no, always great to have you. Glad that we finally were able to talk about this event. Um, and I think everyone should be looking forward to either furthering the discussion in the discussion group or um, look out for more events where we might tease out a bit more. Yeah, yeah, look, please participate in the groups. It doesn't mean you'll be given a whole lot of work. It doesn't mean you have to turn up every month. And I know everyone's tired of doing things virtually. But ironically, our discussion groups ran virtually before this. We just now get to see each other on camera. It was, on, it was via teleconference before. Um, and it just helps our members all around the country and in New Zealand and Hong Kong participate. So, um, so you know, I know that everyone says they're a bit fatigued by it, but it really is the best way to get in touch with everybody at the moment. Um, irregardless of COVID, we can all talk and, and share experiences. And that's really can add value, especially if you're working in a small team or um, on your own. We have a lot of members who are, who are the team. Um, come in and, and build a community and support network and share experiences um, in there. Very, very welcome. Excellent. Thank you very much, Naomi. You're welcome. Thank this you podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute, and the music was produced by Rob Neary. <laughs>